Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff at the top of the show like we usually do. We got a big response from... Our last episode on the Judy Chartier case in Bill Ricker in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Such a strange case, man. I got a lot of emails on this case asking about my theory on it. I don't know. I don't know what happened here. And again, that protocol of keeping cold case information so close to the vest gives you the Chartier case. That's the result of it. It gives you the Dela Cruz case out of Lynn, the Peranian case out of Western Massachusetts, right? It's not working. You have to reevaluate. It's simply not working. And for only those reasons, it's not working. It's not effective. This is where sometimes I wish police departments and municipalities in general worked in more of a business-like fashion. Business is not going to do the same thing over and over knowing it doesn't work, yet we do that with cold cases. And I just have to ask why. Some of the things that seem readily apparent in that case, the car was driven into the Concord River. So obviously that's a local, that narrows it down. You would have to think it's a man, right? Because women don't kill like that. They're not going to kill somebody and then go run their car into the river. I think this is a guy or more than one guy, you know. So the area where the vehicle went into the water is much different today in that case than as it exists now. So I don't know. I don't know if there's more than one person involved to have to do that to put the brick on the accelerator and put the vehicle into the water. And I was also asked about the police response in this case. Does it give the police a bit of a black eye that two civilian investigators with an underwater drone found this? I think it does. I think it does. And it should. And I think it was a big mistake not to release the names of those two guys who showed up at the Chartier house in the early morning hours about 7 a.m. when Judy hadn't even been reported missing yet. I think it was a mistake not to name those guys, and I think you should name them today. I don't know. Crazy. If those guys have been discounted from your investigation, say that as well. What have you lost? It's 40 years. We're coming up on an unsolved. And like I said previously in the other episode, in about a decade, nobody's going to be left alive in this case, you know? Sometimes the way these cases are broken is they tell other people what they've done, you know? They confess. They have a fight. They have a friend. They have an enemy. But they can't put that together unless you put that information out there. 
I just don't know what it serves to keep everything so close to the vest. It's been 40 years. You're going to chart this as an unsolved or unsolvable homicide, right? You're running out of time. The clock is ticking. I hope some new eyes get a look on the Chartier case. I really do. I thought this case was breaking when they found Judy's car and later Judy's body a few days later. I thought that there was a suspect who was cooperating. Man, it just turns out those guys, they did a hell of a job with this drone. They found the car when nobody else could. So kudos to them. But man, my hopes were dashed when I found out it wasn't an inside source giving the location of the car and later Judy. So that's where we are with the Chartier case. Tough one. All right, guys, on a personal note, I've got to give a shout out to somebody from the old neighborhood, a friend of mine, since I was about 12 years old, Sandy Morin Gurley, who listens to the show in the mornings with her daughter, Meg. Both Sandy and I grew up in South Boston, and we've been friends since I was about 12 years old. Meg, this goes out to you. She does know the podcast host. I know you listen to Boston Confidential in the morning with your mom. Thank you so much. And also pass along to your brother, Paulie, that I am in awe of his bravery for joining the United States Air Force. Your mom, Sandy, and your dad, Paul, raised an American patriot here, and nobody's surprised. All right, Sandy, there it is. All right, guys, we're on to the next one. We got to jump into the Wayback Machine way, way back. The Wayback Machine is just landed in 1986, and this is the case of Tracy Gilpin out of Kingston, Massachusetts. I had gotten a lot of recommendations to cover this case as we went, but honestly, there wasn't a lot of information here, and it would make for a short podcast at least ordinarily, guys, but there had been some developments in 2018. But prior to that, there was a lot of coverage on this case, you know, from the typical sources. Bob Wood, who I think does an excellent job, he's a mainstay here on New England TV. Bob Wood's Unsolved and all the shows he does, he's very thorough, very fair, and very aggressive. So three reasons I really like his stuff. The case was also on Dateline some years ago, but in 2018, some developments occurred and the case was actually solved. So from 86 until 2018, this case was cold and at various times they thought they had leads and everything else, but they ended up with a suspect and you would think it's through DNA and everything else. This was just shoe leather police work, it seems. And again, I know I keep coming back to this. They're holding a lot of the information close to the vest on this. But at least this time, there's a trial, okay? There's a trial coming up on it. But don't let me get too far ahead of myself. Let me bring you to the day of this horrible event, this horrible homicide, I'm afraid to tell you. All right, guys, so it is... October 1st, 1986, in Kingston, Massachusetts. I'll give you a little bit of background on Kingston, Massachusetts, although I know I did that just a few episodes ago for the Melissa Benoit case, which that occurred in 1990, so this one came before it. So 
Kingston, Massachusetts is like cranberry country. It's a beautiful community. Geographically, it's very large, but it's a small town, no doubt. And it's about a 45-minute commute to Boston without traffic on Route 3. So <laughs> there's always traffic on Route 3 and then as you go in towards the city. So it, I'd say that's probably the worst commute in metropolitan Boston is Kingston, Plymouth to Boston. And the return could be worse. Everybody knows Kingston, Massachusetts, because when you're going to Cape Cod from Boston, you pass through several exits in Kingston itself. Physically, it's a beautiful town. It is not very populated. The homes must be on like acre lots because they're pretty spread out in most areas of Kingston until you get closer to downtown. And then naturally the homes are grouped closer together. I think the Benoits lived downtown, I believe it was on Main Street. But most of it is pretty spread out. There's definitely a small town vibe. I think they've got a little rivalry going with Plymouth, which is just over the line. And in 1986, not a hell of a lot going on in Kingston, Massachusetts. Also, there wasn't a hell of a lot going on in neighboring Plymouth and all that, Carver, et cetera. But the population has grown since then, and it's actually become a little more affluent. And people go to Plymouth, Kingston, just to get away from the city life, really. And you can commute to Boston by the commuter rail, which is actually pretty good. So back then, buying a home in Kingston, it was much less expensive. I don't think it is that way anymore. I think all of Massachusetts is becoming much more expensive. But back then, you could probably get a house for, I don't know, $90,000, a nice house in Kingston for about 90000 Today, I don't even know if that would give you a down payment. But that brings us to the Gilpin family. They had moved to Kingston, Massachusetts, not entirely out of choice. Mom Kathleen and the dad of the family had divorced, and I get the vibe that it wasn't a very good divorce. But Kathleen took the kids to live with or just near the grandparents who resided in Kingston. And Kathleen was the mom, and she was a single mom for the most part, and naturally the grandparents helped out. And it was actually a pretty happy household from everything I can gather. There was Tracy Gilpin and a brother whose name I'm sorry I don't have. And there was a Kerry Gilpin. Tracy and Kerry were what they call Irish twins. They were born less than a year apart. So that's the saying, Irish twins, right? So Kerry came along first, followed by Tracy and then little brother. And from everything I can gather, they were a happy, tight-knit family. Grandpa, grandma, and mom, you know, they were all doing their best, and it seemed to be going pretty well. The kids went to the regional school system down there and did well. They were good students, and as soon as they moved into Kingston, they had moved in just a few years prior to Tracy's disappearance. But... It was like they had been there for a long time. They made friends very quickly. They say Tracy Gilpin was, of these two Irish twins, Tracy was the more outgoing and the more social and made friends easy. And that flowed downhill to little sister Carrie. So Tracy's friends were also Carrie's friends. You know, they're only a year apart. 
they hung out together every day. So same group of friends and cohorts and all that. And I think the brother was younger. I just don't know by how much. So Tracy was a beautiful 15-year-old girl in 1986. And again, kind of like the Melissa Benoit case, she was on the kid's side of 15, I think, you know. You're not going to mistake Tracy Gilpin as a college freshman. She was definitely on the kid side of her teenage years, and that's fine, right? So on October 1st, 1986, Tracy is due to go to a party, and it's within walking distance within her neighborhood. Tracy was going to this party with two friends that lived right in the same neighborhood, and this was being held by a woman who was in her 20s. She still hung around with teenagers and all this, but for whatever reason, Tracy's sister, Carrie, did not go to the party, and Tracy attended with those two neighbors. And all's going well. It's a teenage party. What goes on at teenage parties? Alcohol, grass, you know, whatever else. It's 1986. I don't know how drunk anybody was and all this. That's usually not something people broadcast, right? But I don't think it could have been too bad because by about 10.30, Tracy Gilpin and her two friends have to get home. You know, they're still teenagers with a curfew. So party's going well. There's no occurrences, no violence at the party, anything like that. Everybody always thinks when someone goes missing after a party, it's always attributed to the party itself. Not always the case. But it's 10.30, Tracy's got to get home, and so do her girlfriends who live in the neighborhood. So they do that. They walk from the house where the party is, and the two friends get to their homes before Tracy gets to hers. So they kind of split off and go their separate ways. Now Tracy is left alone, but she doesn't go right home. She goes to a local Cumberland Farms and purchases some cigarettes. Yeah. I know she's 15, right? But, you know, things were different in 86. Buys some smokes and uses the payphone outside. And she uses the payphone to call the woman who was hosting the party. She does answer, but say, yeah, there's still people here. I can't really leave. And Tracy hangs up with her and then boom, she goes missing. And According to Kathleen Gilpin, the mom, she was beseeching the police to search for her daughter because Tracy doesn't come home that night and she shares a room with her sister, Carrie. Now, her not coming home after attending a party, it wasn't a big concern of the families because you know how teens are. They maybe have stayed over at one of her friend's house. She could be staying at the party. Right. So it wasn't a huge deal. It was a pretty close knit neighborhood. And she had done this before, I'm assuming, because I saw an interview with Kerry Gilpin who said it really wasn't out of the ordinary. So the next day, when Tracy wasn't back, not a huge deal. But now her friends, Tracy's friends, start calling and say, you know, want to talk about the party last night, how teenagers are. But these kids don't know where Tracy is. And now mom panics. And that's when she goes to the police department. 
And unfortunately, they treated this in the exact wrong way. This was in a time where the police seemed to be reluctant to look for a missing person. They had some arbitrary timetable, 24 hours, 48 hours, something like that. Complete nonsense. And I think that went by the wayside, right? In the police academies, like I'm asking them to change the cold case processes. Through the police academies, they said, you're losing valuable time searching for missing people. So get rid of this protocol where we have to wait 24, 48 hours to investigate a missing person. So it was always ludicrous. But that's what they did in this case. And Kathleen went on to say, after a few days, the police were coming back to her and saying, oh, she's been seen at the beach. She's been seen at the mall. She's around. And she wasn't, guys. And again, another protocol that needed to go by the wayside, and at least that one has. The police did ramp up a search at a certain point, but I don't know how active it was. You know, you see some searches called out, and there's a thousand people combing the woods. I don't know if that happened in this case, but time went on, and it was agony for the family. And I've seen some interviews, like I had mentioned previously, with Kerry Gilpin, and I can't imagine how that would affect a little brother. You know, I had older sisters. And if they disappeared like that, I wouldn't know what to have done at that age, you know, at that young age. So Tracy's sister, Carrie, had gotten a job at Blue Cross Blue Shield in Kingston. And a lot of neighborhood kids worked there. And a lot of neighborhood people, adults as well, worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield. And she was working there one day and Tracy was still missing. And they call her name over the intercom, and she's still so new at the job, she didn't really know how to get to the front desk and all that. But she gets down to the front desk, and she sees her mother there. And so she knows that Tracy has passed away at a minimum, and it was a horrible scene. You know, people pinpoint to these moments in their life as before this event and after, you know. And I think that's what happened to the Gilpins here. Tracy Gilpin was found in Miles Standish State Park, which is a massive, and I mean massive. If you look at this park, Miles Standish State Forest, it's in Plymouth, may border Kingston as well, but it's about the size of Rhode Island. It's just massive. It's obnoxiously large, and there's lakes and trails in there, and it sounds very nice, but parts of this place are very remote and desolate because there's just acres upon acres of land. But a woman looking for flowers in the state forest stumbled upon Tracy's body and immediately called the police. It had taken 21 days, but at least one portion of the case was coming to an end. They recovered her body, and there was an obvious head wound, a massive head wound, guys. And she was found without her pants. Both her pants and underpants may have been missing. And it was just a horrible scene. It's exactly as it sounds. She'd probably been out there since the day this occurred. I believe the autopsy would show. So there was some significant decomposition. And I'm sure the woman who found the body will never forget it. But she was at least going to be buried. Tracy was going to be buried in consecrated ground. And that's more than a lot of people get. But... 
when it's happening to you, it just must be a tornado of misery. So now that it's a homicide, the Massachusetts State Police come in and lead the homicide investigation along with the Kingston Police. And the Plymouth Police may have been involved as well because I think the section of the forest was in Plymouth, Plymouth, Massachusetts. So jurisdictionally, that's probably how it would go. But the police go back and interview everybody at the party, and I think they were probably kind of expecting Jesus, a fight, there's an argument, there was nothing. The party went well, and the 15-year-old kids kind of left early. There was older people there, and the kids left early. They had a curfew, and they were trying to do the right thing. I don't know what happened to Tracy. I think she was closer to her residence. I know she needed cigarettes from Cumberland Farms, and I know everybody just wishes she went home. And unfortunately, guys, I don't know the geography of this, how close the houses were. Remember, she was with her two friends. And guys, don't let women walk alone at night, no matter where it is. I know Kingston would have seemed to be Mayberry at the time, and it probably was. Statistically, it probably still is. But women, don't let other women walk by themselves, you know. Figure something out, but... That happens, you know, you're a teenager, you're tired, you got to get home, your parents are going to bust your ass if you're running late. So that's what happened. She went to Cumberland Farms instead of going home, buys cigarettes and is on the payphone and asks that woman who had the party to drive her back to her residence. And I'm sure that woman is kicking herself every day that she didn't take the 10 minutes to jump in the car and bring Tracy home. I'm sure that haunts her to this day. So the interviews happened with everybody at the party and the police were hoping for a thread to follow and they really come up with nothing. You know, nothing really out of the ordinary happened here. So she just disappeared into the ether and they were stymied and the case quickly went cold. I don't recall seeing much on this case over the years. You'd see a Bob Ward special, and he does a great job keeping stuff at the forefront of the public's mind, and the Massachusetts State Police and every police agency could take a lesson from Bob Ward, and they should produce their own videos, their own shows about these cases, okay? One suggestion, guys. So I told you this case had some activity in 2018, but the guilt pins for all these years from 1986 on were kind of just in limbo. I've heard Kerry Gilpin say a few times that Tracy is forever 15. Everybody else got to grow up, high school, prom, college, and Kerry did the best she can despite losing her Irish twin, right? And she goes on and perseveres because really, what else is she going to do? You've got your other little brother to look after. And I'm sure she was concerned for her mother, Kathleen, as well. But she goes off to college and accepts a job, Carrie does. And on a whim, you know, a couple guys are standing around with Carrie and they encourage her to take the state police examination. And she does so with no great expectation of getting on the job. 
but they call her to attend the State Police Academy, which is no small feat in itself, especially at the time when Kerry Gilpin went through. There wasn't many women. And the State Police Academy is notoriously difficult in Massachusetts. So she excelled within the academy and became a road trooper thereafter. But one of the strange things about this case, Kerry Gilpin goes on and holds, I think, every rank going up the chain of command from trooper to sergeant, lieutenant, captain, and all that. And she ends up being the commander of the state police, you know, which in a city would be the police commissioner, right? So she held the top rank at the Massachusetts State Police when all this was coming to a head in 2017, 2018. So what a success story, right? From a victim of crime to the commandant of the state police. Way to go, right? So she's commandant of the state police or commander of the state police, whatever they call it. And she's getting updates on the case of her sister that was murdered 30 years before. It's just crazy. So the state police and the Kingston police never stop work in this case. They have a dedicated unit for cold case homicides. And I think that's a necessity. And it's bearing fruit, guys. I think it is. So in this case, it certainly did. They got a tip. And this is kind of hush-hush. The district attorney's office won't provide much information on it at this point, but they will soon enough. So the district attorney reports that the state police got a tip to a certain guy who had moved out of town about a decade before. And this is 2018, so he would have moved out of Kingston about 2008 or so. The amount of information on this guy is kind of limited, at least in the public domain it is. His name is Michael Hand, and he lived in Tracy Gilpin's neighborhood, Rocky Nook in Kingston. And he was known as kind of an odd guy, quirky guy. But again, there's not a hell of a lot of information on it. I guess his dad was a principal or assistant principal at the local regional high school. But I don't know much about this guy. I have to tell you, he moved out of Kingston in about 2010 to a small town in North Carolina. And I saw some special, I think it was a news special, that when this guy was named as a suspect, people were like, yeah, yeah, I get that. He was kind of a creepy guy. And the house was kind of unkempt and all that. It was, it's kind of a strange background story on this guy. But regardless, it is noted by the district attorney, Tim Cruz, out of Plymouth County, that they did know each other. To what extent Tracy Gilpin knew this Michael Hand, I don't know. I saw her picture of this guy, I don't know, back in the day. He was a young man, never an exceedingly good-looking guy, and he's a monster of a looking guy right now, unfortunately, right? But I think he was like 28 years old or something at the time of Tracy's disappearance in 1986. And it is portrayed by Timothy Cruz, the DA, that the state police or one of the investigators 
just answers a tip from somebody within the investigation. Just the phrasing of it is kind of odd, and it's intentionally so, I get it. But they followed up on a tip, and they go down to North Carolina, and they talk to this guy, and he gives what amounts to at least a partial confession. And it's odd because he points the finger at Henry Meinholz from the Melissa Benoit case, which would come four years later. So he tries to weasel it out of that way. But he goes on to say that he did drop a large boulder on Tracy's head. And it's just the strangest half confession because this guy goes on to plead not guilty. He gets arrested in North Carolina after this confession. And it goes pretty quickly. He doesn't fight rendition to Massachusetts. But what he says happens. I really don't understand the whole story, to be honest with you. But I'll put it in the show notes. They had a hearing in Plymouth County in a superior court down there. And after he had been brought back to Massachusetts, it goes a little bit like this. And I'm going to put that clip in the show notes if you want to take a look at it. He basically says he sees or he's with Henry Meinholz in the Miles Standish State Forest. And there's not a lot of facts here. It's just a piece of the story because they wanted to hold him with no bail, and they were successful in doing that. But the assistant district attorney relays this. Somehow, he's with Henry Meinholz in, in the state forest, the Miles Standish State Forest, and he's there, and somehow he's holding a boulder right, from the ground, and he goes over to turn his head back to Henry Meinholz and looks back and he drops the boulder on Tracy Gilpin's head. And remember, that's true. She suffered a massive head injury. And I think he was concerned when he was telling this story to the state police in North Carolina that they had his fingerprints, that they had his DNA. But I don't think they did. He implicated himself in this. So he tries to put it on Henry Meinholz, and it goes on a little bit longer. He had seen Tracy Gilpin previously getting into Meinholz's car, right? And Meinholz is a good shield in all this because he looked like a serial killer the way he killed Melissa Benoit some four years later, right? So it kind of blows up in his face because I think his fingerprints come back. I think there was some blood on the rock. I think there's DNA, and it points back to Michael Hand. But the thing is, the person it doesn't point to is Henry Meinholz. He is eliminated through the DNA in this case, and the police in that case confirmed that Meinholz was out of town around the time of Tracy Gilpin's disappearance, right? So he basically admits to dropping the brick or boulder onto Tracy's head. And don't forget, guys, she is found without, I think her underwear was off. I know her pants were taken from the scene. This creep probably took them with him as a souvenir. Her underpants had been removed and either thrown to the side or taken along with the pants. So This motivation was purely sexual for Mr. Hand, I think. So, guys, this partial confession jams up 
Michael Hand beyond belief. He should have gotten an attorney, but thankfully he didn't, right? So that takes us up to 2018. And he's arrested and held without bail, and he was in Plymouth County House of Correction. And then COVID hits, and we're still dealing with the effects of that in 2022. The courts were all shut down, and one of the ideas behind shutting down the courts is that you had to keep jurors safe, right? Never mind defendants, plaintiffs, attorneys, judges. So you had to keep the jurors safe. And it's just starting right now to get back to jury trials. And the trial is scheduled for some time in 2022. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was delayed again, guys. If this goofball was smart, he'd be trying to work out a deal where he gives a full confession. And maybe they give him second-degree homicide. I don't know. But it didn't look like the district attorney... Tim Cruz was in any type of dealing mood when I saw him at that hearing, at the bail hearing. He was still pretty angry. And every member of the Gilpin family, including Kerry, the former colonel of the state police, I know I called her a commandant prior, but it's colonel, colonel of the state police. She was there, her brother, and another brother actually... After this happened, it's kind of a strange story. It's kind of nice, actually, where something decent came out of all this. Kerry Gilpin's mom, Kathleen, reconciled with dad after Tracy's murder. And they got back together. They got remarried and had another son. So Kerry Gilpin actually has a brother. It's a little weird, but has a brother that never met his sister, Tracy Gilpin, but he's in this fight as well. And they all did this together and they're a united front against this guy, Michael Hand. I give them all the support and love in the world. It's just to see them. You can see them devastated, you know? She was colonel of the state police, but she's also a victim here. So it's just a strange case. And I'm so happy there's going to be some resolution to this case. And I think D.A. Cruz has a lid on this one because he was very confident. I like to see that. So within this case, you have one old norm, right? The norm of not looking for a missing person within 28 or 48 hours. And that hampered this case, right? And then you come into the cold case section of this and they do the same mistake that everybody else does, not publicly releasing much, you know? Maybe there wasn't much evidence in this case, but just in general, that whole protocol's gotta go, guys. We got rid of that protocol of not looking for a missing person for these arbitrary timelines. We've gotta get rid of how we take care of cold cases as well. But guys, I'll give you an update when that case goes to trial. And I almost neglected to mention, and I apologize, it's at the distal end of this podcast, that Michelle Carter, who killed Conrad Roy, or, well, she was eventually found not guilty of that, where she goaded him to kill himself through getting back into a truck that was filled with carbon monoxide. There is a series on Hulu about Michelle Carter. And I've just started it, so 
Why doesn't everybody watch that as your next homework assignment? And we'll discuss it a little bit here. So watch that special about Michelle Carter on Hulu. But other than that, guys, I think that's all I have here. If you need to get a hold of me, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I'm going to get on to the next one for you, and I'll see you on the flip side.